welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. As in many previous episodes of Translating Aging, our guest today is the founder of a company in the longevity biotech space. However, this company is unusual in that it is, in some sense, a company that builds and nurtures other companies. Although, as we'll see, there's quite a bit more to it than that. The man behind the curtain, Dr. James Pyre, is the CEO and co-founder of the New York-based Cambrian Biopharma, which brings together expert scientists and experienced company builders in a new model of entrepreneurship related to health span and aging. Dr. Pyre, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Me too. Let's dig in. You were the founder of Apollo Ventures, a VC firm focused on the longevity space. Apollo funded multiple companies. It's been very successful and it's still going strong. Why move on to a different model? Apollo was a really formative experience for me. And I think a great experiment in its early days for the whole field, right? Because if you Go back six or seven years to when we were starting Apollo together with Niels Rega and Ola Mensching over in Germany. The three of us had this idea that this longevity biotech field that was just starting to embryonically emerge from the ether, it could be something that could be a whole field of biotech development and not just individual assets that were sort of plucked out of the aging space and kind of funded by VC investors. We asked the question systematically, how do you create a whole portfolio of different breakthroughs in the aging space and advance each one of those? And we did that three times over three years. And each of those companies are still growing strong and are, have been fairly successful, raised follow-on funding, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a number of challenges if you want to be making a big platform play in this longevity space to having to create and raise funds and build a team around every one of those programs on its own. And so as I saw more and more that this space was gaining steam and we had the kind of wonderful combination of more scientists wanting to work with me than we had the ability to create new companies and more investors wanting to give us money than we had the ability to accept that investment. That meant that it was time for me to be able to embrace something that could be much bigger and in some ways more aggressive. And that's why I ended up founding Cambrian with Christian Angermeyer. Christian and I had this idea to build an aging company that could pull together breakthrough after breakthrough in the longevity biotech space, put it all under the same umbrella raise funding that could fund all of these different programs as they get de-risked and grow essentially as fast as the field was growing. And I think that that's what we've been able to do. Before we go on and talk about Cambrian for the rest of the interview, I'd like to hear what you see as the limitations of the conventional VC model for building biotech companies and particularly with respect to preventive medicine and health spend extension. Why is there a limitation on the way things used to be? Why do we need a change? I think as Traditional venture capital applies to the longevity field in particular. We have to remember that, at least in my view, the longevity space is going through two stages over the next decade. The first stage that we're in right now is we've made all of these fundamental insights into how our bodies break down as we age, right? What are the causes of the age-related diseases? 
And we're using those insights to make better medicines for diseases in the existing regulatory environment. But somewhere along the line in the next, you know, decade, there's going to be this switch to do what we really signed up and are creating these companies for, which is to figure out how to apply medicines that could be geroprotective, right, that can sound aging and make people and longer, apply those to otherwise healthy people. And that's really the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for this space. And you can build a great company with just the first one, but really we are all here and the mission of the field is to go after the second one. And so the limitation in the, if you're a VC investing in longevity biotech is actually built structurally into how venture capital funds work. Venture capital funds, they are long-term investors from the perspective of the alternatives, right? Some public market funds trade on a second-to-second basis, whereas VCs have timelines of years. But even if you're a VC fund, the longest VC fund thresholds are like five years, seven years, or something like that, that they would want to hold on to a company before they want to be selling that company off to a pharma company or something else and taking their returns. And If I'm building an organization that wants to be there for part one and part two of the longevity biotech revolution, that has to be within an organization that can retain that same continuity, work with the same scientists, work with the same team to advance drugs all the way to their first clinical approval and then to the second clinical trials in healthy people. And I think that's why the company-based model as opposed to the fund model is going to be better for this space. Thank you for that clear answer. I'm really fond of your description of the two-stage process for the longevity biotech space, which I I haven't heard articulated in quite that way before. It's something that when I started Apollo, I was going around to conferences because it was really common five years ago to see groups that had made some breakthrough in the biology of aging, right? They discovered some new mechanism and then they're like, hey, we figured out how to extend healthy span in a mouse. Hooray. We've created a company about it. And I would bang my fist on the podium and be like, all right, guys, but in order to turn this into a company, you can't just say we're a lifespan extension company or even a health span extension company. You have to figure out a way to make what you've done and the breakthrough that you've made fit in the existing ecosystem, right? And that's what I call using the biology of aging to make new insights and to create better medicines for the diseases of today. I always have thought of that as like the stepping stone to geroscience trials. Fantastic. So the new model, which we're going to talk about now for the rest of the interview, that's exemplified by Cambrian, is the Distributed Drug Discovery Company, or DISCO for short. So James, what's a DISCO? So we call this model, or the DISCO, which has changed a little bit as we've figured out how to do it, but we call it Distributed Development Company. The idea of a distributed development company is that we can actually build something akin to a pharma company where we have a whole pipeline of different assets, breakthroughs that have been made all over the world and kind of collect those under one umbrella. But unlike a pharma company, which would have to say, thank you for making this discovery, now we're gonna acquire this and make it part of Pharmaco X. We can actually say, hey, the scientist that's made this discovery, let's partner with you, create a new baby biotech company that lives underneath the Cambrian umbrella. We have all of the entrepreneurial resources, like we know how to build companies, we can do all the legal, the market research, the strategy, even the research and development and kind of the drug discovery work. And then we pair that with the breakthrough G from 
usually a university partner, but also sometimes a very early stage company. And then by pairing those two things together and giving that company all of the funding that it needs to run its key experiments, we can build this large network of great breakthroughs in the aging space in a really, really quick way that is capital efficient for a bunch of reasons that we could get into later. But it also gives us the scale to start investing in the long term of this space and think about what geroscience trials are going to look like down the road. So as a disco, Cambrian combines features of a company building incubator, a traditional pharma company, and a VC, and a few other things. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. I like to say that we get to take the best parts of being a VC, a pharma company, and an entrepreneurial biotech, and very few of the negatives. (laughs) Well, hopefully. So my next question is going to amount to, tell us how it works. But before I ask that question, I want to acknowledge that this story could be told from different perspectives, from yours, from one of the companies in your nest, from investors. So help me understand this. So the story starts with Cambrian saying, we have this vision, and then you fundraised? In a way... I think it started with the science. And so we had a group of scientists that had made these breakthroughs in the aging space from around the world who had come to me and really our group and said, hey, we have this idea for creating an asset, a biotech company in the aging space. And then there was another group of scientists that had another idea and another that had a third idea. And we were like, okay, instead of doing what a VC or a company builder would do and create three different biotech companies and go try to tell investors to put money into each of these ones individually, or even create a fund that could put money into each of these individually, and then try to hire a CEO for each of them, et cetera, et cetera. We said, okay, well, let's just bring all three of these together into a single company with Cambrian on top. And so for those scientists that were kind of our initial class of companies, for them, it was like, all right, well, we just did the funding and the team building and the licensing all in one shot which are like the three big steps you need in order to go from zero to one in a biotech. And then from an investor perspective, it's a little bit different story, right? Because investors in the longevity space, they're looking for, in many cases, the next big thing, right? Trying to evaluate the quality of each individual scientific discovery in our space to say, okay, well, is this team, is this drug actually going to be able to bring something to market and generate a lot of value with my early stage investment dollars? And here, at the beginning, we had three or four different programs that we could point at and say, hey, look, we're not taking a binary bet. Yes, drug development is risky, but we now have three shots on goal. And that's not a bad way to start from a little bit of capital raise. And now, of course, we've been able to scale that model up dramatically. And we're up over 14 different assets in development in just two years of putting this together with the first ones entering the clinic in the next year and a half or so. So when an investor does give you money, are they earmarking it for individual companies or individual efforts? Or is it more like there's a bucket that the investors are filling and that you, the mothership, are ladling this money out to your subsidiaries? I'm going to circle back. We talked before about taking the best parts of a biotech and a pharma company and a VC. And so here we have kind of the best parts of a pharma and a VC that are combined together. So that when we raise capital into Cambrian, What we get to do is we have our Cambrian team, which cares exclusively about the quality of the science, right? Not the hype or the number of Twitter likes around some particular discovery, but exclusively about the quality of the science. And then we can allocate the right funds to programs that meet predetermined scientific milestones in order to unlock more and more funding for each of these programs. And it's the same idea of like how 
pharma company gets to take its research and development budget and allocate it across all of its different programs that it would have in development. We just do it through a mechanism that looks more like investment because we have all of these different pipeline companies. We have all these different pipeline companies underneath Cambrian. And as they continue to produce really great science, they can get more capital flowing through from Cambrian to those programs. That sounds very reasonable. How is the process of capital accumulation going? Well, it's been going really well. We've had the incredible fortune to be backed by an absolutely stellar group of investors that I think really see where the puck is moving in this longevity biotech space and have made it their mission to get there before it arrives. Obviously, I mentioned I started Cambrian with this billionaire Christian Angermeyer, who has had a number of really good ideas in the biotech space throughout his career. He was actually involved in starting Alnylam, the siRNA company way back in the late 90s to launch his career and most recently has decided that now that he's made it, his mission is to make people live happy and healthy as long as possible. And so Cambrian has a sister company that just went public earlier this summer, and that's a tie creating, it's a, also an approach, creating a bunch of mental health companies, advancing a bunch of different drugs, mostly psychedelics for mental health diseases. That's happy. And then Cambrian is healthy as long as possible. And since Christian and I started Cambrian in 2019, we have raised now about $160 million. The most recent, just at the end of October, we announced $100 million Series C financing. So I would say it's been going pretty well. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's fantastic news. It's been an exciting time, I think, for the whole field. And having a great group of people supporting the work that we're doing all across the pipeline has been just extremely heartening for our whole team. So there's something else I want to make sure I understand about your process. And you sort of answered this before, but I want to kind of isolate it and drill down in the past, but also going forward. Do you identify the founder talent or do they come to you? And are these entities, another way to ask the question, are the entities under Cambrian, are they things that pre-exist before they come to Cambrian or are they created in your nest? So I'm going to take those two questions a little bit separately, because I think the first question is really more about sourcing and the science. And then the second one is more about structure. So on the sourcing and science part of it, it's a little bit of opportunity matched with a whole lot of careful thinking. And so Cambrian breaks apart the existing longevity biotech field at the academic level into 13 different focus areas that we are constantly monitoring the literature, going to conferences, talking with people all over the world to like figure out what the state of the art is across these 13 different fields that we think are the ones going to make the biggest impact in longevity biotechnology over the next few years. And as we're doing that, we will be reaching out to professors, academic groups, even postdocs and grad students to ask them about their work. And if something is at a stage where we're like, hey, we think that this could turn into a company and we would like to support that, that's kind of the default mode for how something in Cambrian starts. But I think because it is a small community and because Cambrian can be a really, really good partner for a scientist that wants to have the capital, the R&D team, the strategy for how to build drugs targeting aging kind of all in one house and not have to worry about where the next paycheck is going to come from in the future. We have had groups approach us and we get pitched things all the time, a little bit like a VC investor. And so I would say our current pipeline is about half and half, roughly, split between those two 
modes. On the structure side, I think we're more agnostic. Again, most of it, probably 80% of our pipeline, we actually started the company together with a scientist that made some key breakthrough in the aging space. But then about 20% are situations where a company had already been started. In some cases, it even maybe raised a little bit of funding before we got involved. And then we came in and said, oh, hey, this is an opportunity to do something really special. And instead of going out and raising more money from other investors, you should become a part of Cambrian and join our extended team. I understand the advantage of Cambrian's approach to the investor. As you said earlier, you're not making a binary bet. You have multiple shots on goal, and that number is growing as time goes by. Let's focus now on What's the advantage to the company, to the founder under the Cambrian umbrella? As in, if I'm a scientist who wants to become a founder, what's the advantage to me and my team of coming under your umbrella rather than pursuing funding via a conventional VC model? I would say I get into that question about approaching this from the company's perspective or from the scientific founder's perspective, particularly. I definitely reverse the order of those two things, right? Because I think that our model was designed to correct some of the inefficiencies that happen for scientists and scientific founders first. And it also is a nice, happy accident that that model is also, I think, the more investable and more scalable one. And for me, as a VC investor who has paid the salary of a lot of different biotech executives over the past years, the thing that has always pained me about how the early stage, and I'm talking particularly like preclinical stage biotech ecosystem works, is how much blood, sweat, tears, and time is spent trying to navigate this very clicky matching algorithm of searching for funding. And so many biotechs I know live or die based on their ability to get like just that perfect pitch deck, right? Or get that right meeting to get in with the right investor so that they'll give them a lifeline to let them do their next bit of research to go forward. I've seen both executives, but also scientists who've made really amazing breakthroughs stumble and have efforts that ultimately fail because they didn't spend enough time, didn't have the right skill set or whatever it is to get the millions of dollars needed to run these programs. And so the reason I go here first is I think that that constant scrappy search for funding is the core inefficiency in early stage, especially asset-centric biotechs, right? Where you've made one key discovery and it's totally worth funding a shot on goal, but it's risky and it's not, you know, a platform like CRISPR or mRNA delivery or something like this. And I think that that search for funding, the ability to replace that with a system that cares only about whether the science is real or not, and that the funding will be there is such a salve for so many of the worries about early stage biotech companies. Not for everybody, but for many different groups that we've talked to, it's a huge advantage and a much better model for those companies because our investment committee meetings, they don't have really pretty pitch decks. They don't have to talk about how this company is going to, this one asset is going to change the world or hype it up. We're like, what are the key de-risking experiments? How does this address one of the key causes of aging? And can we turn this into a drug that will dramatically affect people? And if all of those things are yes and remain yes, we can keep putting in the capital that that program needs in order to move it forward. In this aspect of my role at BioAge as the director of translating aging, I talk to a lot of young founders and early stage founders, and I have seen the struggle. The struggle is very real to get that seed money, to do that next little bit. And I am really heartened by the idea that you've come up with a way to address 
this key inefficiency and this, honestly, this source of suffering in the field. I think a lot of talent is lost to it. It's absolutely right. And in fact, I think that the field may even be selecting for the wrong kind of talent. If we're selecting only for the types of breakthroughs that can attract early stage venture money, then we may be missing the type of breakthroughs that come from founders from, for example, underrepresented groups or groups that are not hooked into the San Francisco and New York and Boston funding hubs. And that's actually a big part of our focus is that we actually want to find and work with founders from outside of those hubs. We have a few inside the hubs as well. But finding groups outside the hubs, we actually find that those folks have often made substantially more progress with a lot less capital investment because they had to because of where they were and what their networks were. And so creating an organization that can really assess a group on it, whether it sinks or swims based on the science and not the ability to raise money, I think has been a huge advantage for us. So let's get back to talking about Cambrian. I kind of imagine you as the mother hen. And there's 5, 10, 30 eggs in your nest. How many are there right now, by the way? So right now we have 14 different assets under Cambrian's umbrella. And that includes nine collaborations with different universities, some of which are collaborations that are not just, you know, one asset. They actually have two things underneath them. And then a few that are actually Cambrian ideas that we've created out of whole cloth from hypotheses that we came up with. Okay. So let's talk about the life cycle of a company in the Cambrian nest. What are you watching for as time passes? What happens when there's success? And for that matter, how is success defined? And what happens when the results are disappointing? As we go into this, we have to just, I think, open eyes that drug development is a risky business to be in. So that as optimistic as we can possibly be, the reality of the situation is when a drug starts its first human clinical trial, there is about a 10% chance that it will ultimately make it to approval. And if you select just on like venture-backed biotechs from really smart groups, that number only goes up to about 15, 16%. So that is a relatively low percentage chance. Do we think that we can do better than that? Sure. But if you want to build a portfolio approach to really make sure that we get some geroprotective compounds all the way through to approval, you need a lot of different shots on goal, and some of them are not going to work out. I don't think it's going to be 85% chance. I think we can do better than that, although we don't put that into our financial models. But that's kind of the first important thing. Drug development is a risky business. And so the way that we approach success in this space is by really, really carefully defining what success looks like at every stage of a drug's development. And so the Cambrian team will sit down and say, okay, well, if we want to figure out if this drug is going to be a good fit for Cambrian's pipeline, we want to position it for disease X. So let's talk about what the right experiment to test if this drug will be suitable in disease X is. And then we also need to be able to manufacture it easily. We need to make sure it has a good toxicity profile so it can be incredibly safe. We need to make sure it's stable and all of these other things. And so we set a set of rubrics that kind of translate easily into a business plan for that pipeline company. And then we say, all right, can we meet all of these goals with X amount of time and Y amount of funding? And so as we rack up successes in that sort of 
rubric, right, where we have these predetermined scientific milestones, then we can come back at various points and say, okay, how are we doing? Is there an opportunity to go even faster? And do we need more money to go faster and take the next steps? And what would be the next experiment now that we succeeded in this one? And so I think that's sort of the path of success. I like to call it the engine of set a strategy, execute on R&D, analyze the data, look at the data, set the strategy, execute on R&D, and you just kind of like let that tumble dryer keep going until you're ready to get that drug into patients, right? You can go all the way through clinical trials with that thesis. If some data doesn't work out, then we sort of have two ways of assessing that. The first thing that we'll do is we have tried to build a culture that acknowledges very openly, hey, we didn't meet this milestone. And we said, hey, we wanted to do this experiment. This is what success from this experiment looks like. Here's what we got. This wasn't what we expected. Then we have to decide either A, is there some signal here where we think, ah, this didn't work out, but there's actually something really interesting about the signal that we did get, and that creates a new opportunity. And we can almost revisit that as like an entirely new set of hypotheses to take, and we'll make a yes-no investment decision based on that new idea that has emerged. Or we say, look, not all bets work out. And this one, the data came up this way and it didn't. And so what we do in those cases is we say, look, we can't continue to give money to this or can't continue to invest in this, but we actually let the asset return to the control of the scientific founder. Let's focus on the branch of the possibilities in which you're successful and you have a drug that you want to take to market. You've described Cambrian as a pretty full-stack organization. Are you going to commercialize the drugs yourself or pursue partnerships with other players in the pharma business? We talked a little bit at the top of the show about how the longevity biotech space is going to be developing in two stages. Our first stage where we use insights into what makes us age to build drugs for today, and the second to use those drugs that will now be safe and effective and ready to go to treat healthy people to slow down the rate of aging. And so in my view, in order to be a bona fide longevity biotech, you have to be able to build an organization that's going to do both of those pieces. And for us, that means being willing with every single program that we get involved with. If the science continues to look great, that means we are going to be there with that group, providing the funding, the organizational structure, everything to see that all the way through to commercialization. Does that mean that we will never partner with a big pharma company in order to get the best? people and the best groups on hand to maximize the success of that drug? Absolutely not. And in fact, we're constantly having discussions with the big pharma players who are specialists in this space, especially around the initial indications that we are advancing these drugs for, so that we could form potential partnerships where we get to see some of the long-term GERA protection stuff, and then we could have them take the lead on specific indications, or even on a specific program where we support in the research and development side. And so there are opportunities to do that in the future. But I think the default orientation of saying, hey, we are ready to follow this program soup to nuts, all the way through from like an idea in a lab through marketing, a I think that's really special. And something that a biotech company that's transitioning to a pharma company with some amount of scale, that allows us to do that. Okay, let's talk about that pipeline. We're very understanding about the fact that for competitive and other reasons, you can't always be 100% transparent about what's going on under the hood at your company. But that having been said, what can you share with us about the current portfolio and the status of any clinical programs? Man, I wish that I could talk about more, right? Because there's an awful lot going under the hood right now. There's a lot of that going around. Yeah. And so of the 14 different programs that 
Cambrian has under our umbrella. There's actually only two of them that have been publicly disclosed. And that is our collaboration with Vita Therapeutics, which is a Johns Hopkins spinout led by a really fantastic CEO, Doug Falk. And Vita is a really, really cool company. We could do a whole podcast on just Vita, but essentially they've figured out how to take induced pluripotent stem cells from any person and program those iPSCs into the progenitor cells that make skeletal muscle. And they've been able to show very, very convincingly in preclinical models, and it will soon be clinical, that you can insert those iPSC-derived skeletal muscle progenitors into the muscles directly, and they will integrate and form part of healthy muscle long-term and even repair injured muscle or genetically dysfunctional muscle, like in muscular dystrophies. I think that's a really, really cool cell therapy platform that's being built underneath the Cambrian banner, but really run by this fantastic group out of Hopkins or affiliated with Hopkins. And for the other 12 programs, I'm afraid I can't say too much more. Although I will say, and maybe this is a bit of deflecting the question, which I don't intend to do, it is kind of ridiculous that so many of us in the field are put in this position, that we really can't talk about this. And one of the fascinating things to me, and this is kind of going back to like advantages of the disco model versus traditional VC investment and like forming individual biotech companies, is that a lot of this comes down to patents, especially for single drugs. You need to get a patent on your drug. And in order to be able to go out and like form a little biotech and project out to the world like, hey, we're doing this thing, please come invest in us. What I see happen all the time is that those biotechs will file their patents around their drug or their key IP as quickly as possible so that they can feel comfortable to go and broadcast this to the world to get funding. But in actuality, we have to realize that that's a very bad idea from the perspective of the long-term value that this drug is going to have if it's really going to be a blockbuster. Because the value of any drug is driven essentially by its patent life. So you want to file that patent as late as possible just before you have to disclose what the exact composition of the drug is to the FDA. And so one of the cool things that we can do in the Cambrian model is that we can actually avoid filing those patents, keeping them as trade secrets as long as we possibly can in order to maximize the long-term value of that patent lifespan, which, by the way, makes doing GER protection trials that much more available at the back end of that. And I think that's the trade-off, the downside of that, if you will, is that we have to be even more careful about keeping programs under wraps. Well, I think I speak for all of our listeners when I say that we look forward to the day when you can tell us more. But your answer gave me a thought, which is, it seems like the DISCO model could apply to any kind of biotech. In your mind, is it exclusively appropriate in the aging longevity gyro protection space? Or is this something that could ultimately be generalized and kind of take over the way things are done in uh, clinical biotech? I think you're absolutely right there. And that models like the DISCO model that we're using with Cambrian are actually going to replace a big chunk of early stage venture capital in the biotech space, and particularly for asset-centric companies, single breakthroughs that are being made at a university. But we didn't invent this model just to tailor it to the longevity space. We actually took inspiration from a few other companies that were already doing this in other places in biotech. I think the best example is a group called BridgeBio that's based out in the Bay Area. 
and went public in, in 2019, that's kind of been the sort of the North Star, if you will, of how to do this distributed development company model right. The CEO, Neil Kumar, likes to call it a hub and spoke model. And so with our Series C round that we just closed, we were actually pretty psyched to get one of BridgeBio's directors, the former CEO of Allergan, Brent Saunders, who actually joins uh, as a board member Cambrian. And so it's just a model that I think is already sort of eating the lunch of other early stage biotech VCs, so to say. And I think because the efficiencies plus the ability to live on public markets plus the ability to reach different investors with different kind of risk tolerance, that combination of all of those things is getting even the early stage biotech investors to start to trying to make their own discos right now because it's just so much better as like a business model innovation in the space. And so I think it's perfect for longevity, but it goes beyond longevity as well. Sticking to the longevity focus for the moment, I have a question that I'm going to ask in as diplomatic and delicate a way as I can. I can think of a couple of other entities in which Umbrella or Hub and Spoke organization was providing funding, de-risking, and other kinds of support to fledgling biotechs in the aging space. I'm not going to mention either of their names. One of them seems to have evolved into a CRO. Another one is now starting to call what used to be its subsidiaries, its, quote, platforms. It seems to be kind of holding them closer and closer until the lines completely are blurred between the mother hen and the things in its nest. So I could be wrong, but it seems like there's been a little bit of a trend where, superficially at least, efforts that sound somewhat similar developed into what seem like more conventional models of one kind or another. I could be completely off base there. Could you tell me what you think about that? I can't really comment on the individual kind of things that have happened across the pipeline or across the field, because obviously I haven't been under the covers and know exactly what's going on in those places. But the general trend that you're getting at of like being a really difficult model to pull off is something that we have really spent an awful lot of time thinking about. And I think that it comes down to really two different aspects of this. The first is that I sometimes call this model of biotech the hungry beast model of building biotechs. And I call it the hungry beast model because we all know that in addition to being risky, like we talked about before, doing drug development is expensive. Clinical trials are expensive. Doing preclinical de-risking the right way is expensive. And so you need an awful lot of risk capital into a program before it will make money. And so figuring out how to make smart decisions pick the winners, and then having the resources to support those winners after they hit their milestones, it does require a ton of capital. And one of the things that Cambrian has been extremely fortunate in is that we've been able to access that capital through a combination of having a great group of investors who we think really are seeing where this field is going and what its potential is, but also by being very realistic about the chances of success or failure of each one of the programs underneath our umbrella and not trying to oversell each one as if it's going to be the thing that changes the world. I already mentioned that we assign some probability of failure to every one of our programs, and that makes us just a little bit more grounded about the chances of success, which actually increases the availability of capital to do more. So that's kind of part one of how we approach this. And then part two is more on the organizational side. Running all of these different pipeline companies requires just so much coordination, so much work. 
One of the first hires that we brought on to Cambrian that has been an absolutely critical member of our team was actually our COO, Juliet Hahn. And Juliet is a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard, who was then one of my mentors when I was a consultant at McKinsey, but then spent a bit of her career after leaving consulting for pharma companies working on how to build great organizational structures for PE firms. By having her join in, we actually added this whole additional layer of really brilliant strategic thought of how to build one of these companies. And we could walk a little bit in the footsteps of other companies that did it well, like Bridge Bio, and then bringing that expertise on board that just was has been able to take each of these challenges of building a company like Cambrian step by step by step and getting better and better, which our whole team is kind of united about doing, has been a huge advantage for us. Recognizing those problems and then just beating down each brick wall we run into one after another to make it work for us. And it's tough, but I think it's also a big part of the fun of building something that can really scale. Earlier in the interview, we talked about how you were somebody who was doing well in the conventional model of VC, but saw a need for a change. Do you see any other kind of revolutionary change coming down the pipeline in terms of how geroscience companies can be funded? And I guess I want to throw in, is there anything that discos can't do that other models might do better? We've talked a lot today about why I think the disco model is particularly good for, let's call it, asset-centric breakthroughs that are made by very small companies or at universities that think they're ready to become small companies. That doesn't mean it's the catch-all solution for everything in the geroscience space. And so I refer to this sort of class of discos, hub and spoke, whatever we want to call it. I call them engines because we talked about it, the laundry machine of like set some strategy around an asset, set some killer experiments, execute on the strategy, evaluate the data and kind of like refresh, 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 refresh and do that again and again. I think that that works really, really well for these asset-centric de-risking models and that these models are going to replace a lot of what's out there in the biotech space. But it doesn't replace two other types of companies that don't really live well underneath discos. And one of them that is a big word in the biotech investment field right now is platforms, groups that have assembled some piece of intellectual property that gives them special insight into creating a whole series of drugs based on their special knowledge that they have generated. And BioAge is a good example of this in the longevity space, although the ones that I usually point to in the bigger biotech space are like Moderna and CRISPR Therapeutics, right? These kind of companies that have a technology platform that can just spawn tens or even hundreds of drugs out of that one tech platform. Those companies need so much capital in order to de-risk. It makes the most sense for them to be their own thing. So that's kind of one group. And then there's a second group that I don't want to discount, even though it doesn't match the disco model that well. But there is a group out there of, let's call it founder-led biotechs that are like young folks that want to go and just build their own company and make 100% of their own choices and assemble their own team and raise their own money and like be a CEO, entrepreneur, and like that's their mission. Many of those folks don't fit within Cambrian's model. Let's just put it that way, that there are other investors that they may have better connections to that are 
better sources of capital for those companies. And many of those companies can be very, very, very successful, driven by extremely passionate individuals. But we see those as just different swim lanes from where we are. There are a small number of situations where we're like, okay, you know, we want to just give money and then let the company make all of its own decisions because we're just much more hands-on. We want to be doing the research and development and the funding and a lot of the strategy together with the scientists that we start things with, which doesn't fit for everybody. I mean, it seems like, you know, looking toward the future, if in the world where models like the Disco model take a big share of kind of the biotech strategy space, you need to have people who are experienced at building companies in order to fuel that. So it makes sense for there to be small companies in which the founder or CEOs want to do it all, because that's the way that they're going to accumulate that experience to maybe someday do something more like what Cambrian is doing. I think that's right. Although I think that it is important to distinguish the difference between building companies from building really great therapeutics. And one of the things that I love about the Disco model is like we've almost taken that job of early stage biotech CEO, which has to have mastery of the science, know how to build a de-risked clinical trial plan, know how to get funding, know how to build a Gantt chart, knows how to project manage, and knows how to like do the market research to figure out what indication to select for their breakthrough in the longevity space. And we've exploded that role into all of its different component parts and brought in experts at each one of them that can actually, as a team, build a company where we don't even necessarily need in the DISCO model that CEO. We need that breakthrough to happen at the basic research level, usually at a university. And then we have this layer of extremely experienced specialists that we can bring in as opposed to sort of that jack-of-all-trades kind of CEO role that you see characterizing many of these individual founder-led companies. The closest that Cambrian gets, I guess, to that is probably my role as the CEO of Cambrian. But my role is in some ways to obviate the need for that at all of the pipeline. I'm glad that I asked that somewhat uninformed question because your answer really helped me level up on my understanding of the value proposition of what Cambrian is doing. So we're going to close up now. And there's a couple of questions that we like to ask all of our guests. So um, you're encouraged to you know, put on your blue sky thinking hat and give be a little loose with your answers. What's the most interesting aspect of aging, longevity, health span that you are not working on? So I think the most interesting thing that we have not touched at all and don't have plans to touch is what I'm going to blithely call external factors in aging. How does the environment that we live in, the food that we put into our body, the pollutants that we breathe in, how do all of these things affect aging? And are there ways of mitigating that as almost the equivalent of being geroprotective? I think there's a growing amount of research focusing on that space. But the tools that are going to come up related to external factors on aging are probably more in the medical device or kind of measurement and diagnostic space as opposed to in the therapeutics development space. So that's one I'm just kind of reading the literature and watching with interest, although we don't have a hand in it. The second general question is one that you've already touched on your answer to as a theme throughout our conversation, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Where do you see the field in 10 years? So as of right now, that would be, you know, towards the end of 2031. I think that we will be at a stage where the first, let's call them putative geroprotectors, drugs that extend healthy lifespan in mice 
and are shown to be safe and effective in the first clinical trials for humans in some disease are now approved and on the market, right? So they're already being sold for patients with XYZ disease. And sometime before that 10-year mark, I think we'll cross the threshold and we'll be starting our clinical trials in healthy, normal individuals taking these now demonstrably safe and effective drugs to try to prevent them from getting disease in something that we didn't spend a lot of time talking about today in short biomarker-based endpoint trials. And then at some time, probably close, we're hoping, close to that 10-year cutoff, these trials that will be ongoing will lead quickly into the first geroprotectors being approved for human use in otherwise healthy people within a a little bit more than a decade. So I think that that's sort of the timeline that we're working on for how this field transitions from its first phase to its second phase. 10 years is right around that fulcrum point. Well, I certainly hope that you're right. And I'm sure many of our listeners do too. James Pyre of Cambrian Biopharma, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. This was a really fun conversation. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.